Coming up on Tech Nation, have you got it down how to Zoom yet? Looking professional while in your pajamas? Or ever run into trouble with all that email you send out? Erica Dwan joins me to talk about her book, Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Then how exactly do you take an insight at the lab bench to an actual product? I speak with Dr. Mark Allen, the co-founder and CEO of Elevion, about how they've moved from their science to selecting their first target, stroke. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. In 2012, I interviewed National Medal of Technology winner Ray Kurzweil about his book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. In it, he writes, the story of human intelligence starts with a universe that is capable of encoding information. We have a world based on information, and he's not talking about the digital kind. There's a lot of debate as to how we ended up in the universe that can encode information. Uh, some people use the anthropic principle that if it wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here and wouldn't be talking about it. But th that allowed evolution and evolution has evolved more and more complex creatures that eventually evolved a nervous system. And those nervous systems ultimately evolved a neocortex, which is capable of thinking in hierarchies to reflect the natural hierarchy of the world. This first emerged in mammals. It was the size of a postage stamp and as thin as a postage stamp and little rodents. Uh, not very noticeable, but it allowed these animals to actually learn new skills that were complicated and hierarchical uh, without having to go through thousands of years of biological evolution to change their behavior. But then, 65 million years ago, there was this cataclysmic event called the Cretaceous Extinction Event, and we can see archaeological evidence of that everywhere in the world. Something happened very dramatic to change the environment very quickly, and uh, animals, non-mammalian species that did not have a neocortex died out. Many of them did, uh, and that's when mammals took over their this ecological niche. And to anthropomorphize, biological evolution said, hey, this neocortex is pretty useful, and they start growing it uh, as mammals got more complex. And by primates, it was no longer flat. It was very convoluted. If you, you know, know what the brain of a primate looks like, it has many ridges and convolutions to increase its surface area. It's still a very thin structure. If you were to stretch out a human neocortex, it'd be about the size of, size of a table napkin and just as thin. But because of its, all of these curvatures and convolutions, it's about 80% of the brain. And it's where we do our thinking, and we think in, in hierarchies. And the big innovation in, in Homo sapiens is we have this big forehead. We could squeeze in more neocortex, and that was the enabling factor to, that permitted the development of language. Art and science and music, uh, no other invention, technology, no other species does that. Other primates began to do a little bit of it. They have some primitive language and tool-making skills, but only humans can really build this, this fantastic hierarchy. And now we're actually using that scientific ability to understand 
the best example of human intelligence, which is the human brain. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we can see inside a human brain with enough precision to see what's going on. And we can see our brain create our thoughts. We can see our thoughts create our brain. That's key to how the neocortex works. The connections between these different pattern recognition modules, which is part of my thesis, uh, that represents the hierarchy of our concepts, uh, we create ourselves from the moment we're born and even before that. We're laying down these this conceptual hierarchy from very primitive recognitions like the crossbar in a capital A or the edge of an object up to things like, she's pretty, you know, that was ironic. They're actually done by the same recognizers, except that those high-level recognizers exist at the top of this conceptual hierarchy. And the hierarchy is created by actual wiring of actual dendrites and, and axons between these different modules. Uh, I estimated we have about 300 million pan recognizers. They each have about 100 neurons. So the basic unit is not a neuron. It's a, it's a module of about 100 neurons that can recognize a pattern and that can build these connections to other modules. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Ray Kurzweil, the author of How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. Today, Ray Kurzweil is the chief futurist at Google. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we've all had our fill of Zoom meetings and everything digital. And guess what? It's not going to stop. Erica Dwan joins me to talk about digital body language, how to build trust and connection no matter the distance. Then science may help us restore how quickly we are able to heal, just like when we were younger. Alevion's Dr. Mark Allen joins me to talk about their scientific discoveries and how this may be key to treating stroke. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at MindK.com. And now, Erica Dwan. Erica, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Several decades ago, we were inundated with the concept of body language. Now it's digital body language. Is it all that much different? Body language hasn't disappeared in a digital world. It's just transformed. It is different, but it's also not that much different. We all knew the power of direct eye contact, the head nod, the smile. Now we just may infuse those signals in a different way. An emoji, an exclamation part, signaling on a video call, using the Zoom chat to showcase that we agree or we are excited about something that someone just said. So digital body language is in many ways an upgrade, not a entirely different frame of reference. In your family, silence was a sign of respect to elders and listening a prized trait. Now tell us about that. This really gives background to what we're doing today. 
I grew up as a shy and introverted girl. My parents were Indian immigrants that came to America following the American dream. They were physicians. And, you know, much of my childhood was really built around Indian customs and values. We spoke Hindi and Punjabi at home, which means when I went to school, I had accented English and struggled to speak up in class. And in many ways, being a good person was about listening and creating space for elders to speak, not necessarily for me to speak. And I think that in many ways, those lessons around the importance of observation and the importance of listening allowed me to develop my own passion for body language, traditional body language, when I was younger. Well, you do say that nonverbal cues make up 60 to 80 percent of face-to-face communications. Does that come through on the screen? On the screen, we are seeing only about 5% of body language that we would see in traditional face-to-face interactions. We all know the power of the head nod, the shrugged shoulders, the pursed lips. Now in a world of screen freezes, echo delays, the fact that it's not natural to see our own visuals on a video screen while we're communicating with someone else, our body language is changing in a digital world. And it is much harder to act in the more natural ways that we've had in the past. But at the same time, just like we've spent years mastering traditional body language with on-the-job feedback and courses and books, now is the moment where we all have to learn this new skill of digital body language because hybrid life is here to stay. Okay, listening attentively. How do we show that? I like to say reading messages carefully is the new listening and writing clearly is the new empathy. Listening signals uh, used to show up in the head nod and the nodding or bobbing and in our face slightly tilted, showcasing that we're leaning in. But in a digital world, many of those cues are invisible. So how do how do we show we're actively listening? Active listening can be being having quick responses to a message to showcase that we are attentive. It could also mean in a video call using the chat tool to showcase not only that we agree, but maybe adding a substantive comment following up on on a past comment. It could also be shown through symbols like emojis or exclamation points, depending on your digital body language style. The reality is, is that we actually have a whole new multiplicity of approaches to showcase we're listening, but it all starts by assuming good intent by being our authentic selves and bringing what's best about us, even though we can't show it physically in a more explicit way in in a digital world. I have to say, I really love the thumbs up emoji. I love it for a number of reasons. First of all, it's like, yeah, I'm with you. And you haven't said any words that confuses anybody. It's like, I'm just reflecting it back at you. And people stop sending you things right after that. It's like, it's over in the most positive way. I don't know how we do that with words, but the thumbs up, aces, really great. Well, in fact, one thing that I discovered in my research when I looked at digital body language across cultures is that you have to watch how you emoji, especially across cultures. In fact, the thumbs up emoji, Mora, in Western cultures is like, okay, great, we've got it. But in other Eastern cultures, including Nigeria and Afghanistan, the thumbs up emoji is actually vulgar or offensive. So uh, it's actually really oh, important never mind. to, <laughs> to um, realize that these signals and cues in the digital world 
are very similar to regional dialects or cultural accents in the traditional body language culture. And what may work in one with one audience may not actually fit another audience. It's interesting you use the word audience because we often use the word audience for a whole group of people in a room or a whole group of people in a meeting. And body language is one thing, but you also talk about the body language of an audience. How do you read the body language of a group? For much of my life, especially as a keynote speaker, uh, we all know that it's not what people say, it's how they say it that makes or breaks being able to read a room. And for me, uh, as a speaker engaging audiences, I knew that blank expressions meant that there was disinterest. I knew that shrugged shoulders often meant people were tired uh, or leaning back. I, I knew that if individuals were leaning in with their eyes wide open and I got smiles that they were engaged and excited and ready to listen more. And I always adjusted my cues and signals back to them based on the traditional body language signals I received. Now in a world of digital body language, let's be honest, this is much harder. If we get an email from someone that may seem a little rude or angry, we have no idea whether they're on the verge of tears or whether they're really excited and abundant. Uh, you know, even what my research found is if you use all caps in a message and okay in all caps, for some it can feel like shouting, for others it can feel like excitement. Uh, you know, exclamation points. For some, it can feel uh, like urgency. For others, it can feel like gratitude and happiness. So the reality is, is that many of our traditional body language signals are removed in this digital world. And that realizes, it causes us to have to read the room differently, which is all about assuming good intent, not ruminating about what something can mean, and instead engage to ask for clarity, because what was implicit in traditional body language has to be explicit now in digital body language. Well, explicitly, we all think we write great email, <laughs> but you write that 50% of the time, the tone of our emails are misinterpreted. What? <laughs> 50%? We're writing emails like crazy. We are writing emails all day long. Uh, you know, the average employee pre pandemic was sending about 96 emails per day that has shot up. We don't actually have the the newest research on the number of emails we're sending, but I could guess uh, that number has been tripled at least in our working environment that we're in right now. What we often are experiencing is that we are, you know, tone deaf and we have to become more tone deaf in our emails. I like to say that we have to think about emails not like speaking like we would in person, but we have to think about them almost as visual cues, like websites. People read emails like websites. So for example, in the body of your email, are you just writing a long verbose paragraph that no one wants to read? Or are you thinking like how someone would read a website, starting with a greeting, maybe having bullet points, bold and underlined headings, getting to the point quickly so people actually want to read your message? Do you have a clear subject title? Is it clear what, what the body of the content is about? This makes or breaks whether people even open your email today. I even recommend simple cues like having a response time expectation in the subject line. 4-H means I need this in four hours. 2-D means I need this in two days. And simple things like that can create a sense of clarity and awareness so that others can, can engage back with you in the best way possible. And the last tip I have when it comes to writing good emails is 
thinking about even the two CC BCC line, not as trivial decisions, but the two lines should just be for anyone who needs to respond to the message. The CC line should be for anyone that just needs to read it and doesn't need to respond. And I recommend only using the BCC when you just don't want everyone to reply all back, but making sure to really understand what these signals mean and how they can either make or break engagement is a critical skill in our modern world. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Erica Dwan. You may know her from her earlier book, Get Big Things Done. She's here today with Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Now, you do bring up that there can be passive-aggressive language in, in email. Um, I love the translations of what one thing means and what it really means. Uh, okay, so translate for us. Per my last email, what does that mean? So for some of us, we may use per my last email commonly. Perhaps we learned it in business school or we mimicked it from our boss. But for Others, per my last email, may mean you didn't read what I actually wrote. Make sure you fix that next time. (laughs) That's not good. Okay, for future reference. For future reference, again, is a very common term in modern email language. But in certain situations, for future reference can also mean pay attention next time. You didn't do it this time. All right, we'll, we'll pick one more. There's more on the list, but we'll pick one more. Going forward. Going forward again, a common email phrase. I use it very often. For some, it's just, let's make sure we're on the same page moving forward. For others, it can mean, stop doing that. I'm sick of it. Or, wait a minute, you're telling me (laughs) what we're going to do going forward? Exactly. (laughs) I'm in charge of me, as any good two-year-old would say. (laughs) Exactly. And if we were in a room together, Maura, We could see those different intonations. We could see furrowed brows where someone may be uh, curious or angry. We could see uh, happiness or joy if someone said going forward with a high intonation in their voice. But when it comes on a screen, we miss all those cues. And it is more important than ever to give some grace, to not get caught up in what you're reading into, what may be a passive aggressive message, and simply assume good intent and ask for clarity. Now, you do use the word tone frequently throughout the book, but it's, you know, it's hard to put your finger on tone. Your tone, what tone? I don't have a tone. You have a tone. I mean, there are more arguments over the existence or non-existence of tone than there is solving the problem with tone. What are we really talking about here at a deeper level about tone? Tone has always uh, showcased the, the range of emotions that we've had in conversations. We have experienced in our face-to-face lives an angry tone, a sad tone, a grateful tone. You can hear it immediately in my voice, a happy tone. And how uh, the range of our voices, the expressions on our faces have allowed people to understand not only what individuals are saying, but what's really going on in the conversation. Now, when it comes to digital tone, Let's be honest, this is much harder to read, to understand. The lack of synchronicity and back and forth of reading cues, the effect of being behind a screen and and sometimes, you know, no video at all, not being able to read any of those cues. I've even experienced stories of my clients on phone calls where they're telling 
an employee that they're not performing well and that they will not get promoted. And then at the end, the employee will say, okay, well, when am I getting promoted? Because they couldn't even hear the tone in the voice that they were upset. And, and so at the end of the day, I do believe that in the world of digital body language, we are more tone deaf than ever. And the only way that we can bring back a level of tone is bringing more explicit norms to our team cultures, to our lives, so that we understand actually new cues and signals. And we create a new language that we are only at the beginning of exploring, especially in the last year, but we have a whole frontier in journey to build, similar to learning a new language in a foreign country. Now, you talk about four things that you want to convey, trust, engagement, excitement, and urgency. What conveys each of those four? Let's start with trust, the handshake. I got you, you got me. We trust each other at the end of a meeting. Now, in a digital world, how do we showcase a virtual handshake of trust? I recommend when you're on, especially if you're on a video call or a phone call, sending a quick email recap within 30 minutes of a meeting is like the new virtual handshake. It signals that we're on the same page, we have an accountability, and we know what to do next together. Now, let's go to excitement. Excitement is often expressed in a face-to-face body language setting through the power of our, of our eyebrows, especially surprised or raised eyebrows show a level of excitement. Also, the smiles on our faces. Now, let's go to a world of digital body language. That excitement could be shown through multiple exclamation points. It could be shown through an all caps message. It, it could be shown through sending multiple messages on different mediums. I'm so excited by text. I'm so excited by email and writing a handwritten note. Uh, let's go to urgency. Urgency is a bit similar to excitement, but it shows up in different ways depending on the medium you use. So if you write an all caps message in a text, that may be a common sign of digital urgency, whereas face-to-face, it could have been verbally shouting at someone, we need this right now. And then last but not least, so we've covered excitement, uh, we've covered urgency, we've covered trust. Let's talk about engagement. So engagement used to mean uh, oftentimes many of those cues of leaning in, uh, tilting our head, and direct eye contact. And engagement today may mean when a group of individuals are chatting on a video call, going into the chat and summarizing the ideas uh, of the most recent individuals and sharing an additional thought. It may mean, uh, I wanted to um, send you a thoughtful email. So instead of bombarding you with 15 pages of documents, I screenshotted up one simple thing. I had a clear subject line of why this is urgent and when it was due, and it allowed others to actually feel engaged and feel valued for their time. And another example of engagement is simply saying at the beginning of a, of a phone call or a video call, we have to get through this in this meeting today, and here's why I need your input. Here's how I've designed the meeting to allow all of you to engage and participate. And if we all stay present in this meeting, we'll end the meeting 10 minutes early. That will quickly create engagement and avoid rampant multitasking. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. I like that. Well, respect does play out throughout your book. What shows respect in the digital world and what shows lack of respect? One of my key tenets of 
digital body language is the ability to truly value others visibly, especially in a world where so many of our respect cues, direct eye contact, uh, handshakes are now not really available to most of us. I believe that respect is about showcasing and valuing people's time, valuing their schedules, valuing their inboxes. It's particularly in a world where we're feeling Zoom fatigue and email overload. And so what does that look like? Respect is about being thoughtful of individuals' time, sending agendas in advance, having clear subject lines, not uh, miswriting messages and rushing messages and then having to redo them. In meetings, respect looks like making sure that you're creating space to acknowledge differences so that everyone can share, introverts, extroverts, those that are native to digital communication, those that are still adjusting to it and may prefer the phone call. And last but not least, respect is creating a space so that individuals can all feel able to speak up. And that can look like everything from in a meeting, going around and saying, I'd like everyone to share one win of the week, one challenge, and then we're going to do a little bit of a mastermind to help each other tackle these challenges. Or respect could mean, I'm going to send an agenda 48 hours in advance of the meeting so that everyone has time to process ideas, especially introverts that were already struggling with time to process in face-to-face meetings. And then, you know, during the meeting, instead of just calling on people, using the chat tool to have everyone share their comments in the chat and then call on people that have different or diverse ideas so that we're not just relying on the fastest person to speak up, usually the extroverts or senior leaders, but the diversity of ideas. Now, let's talk about what a lack of respect looks like, which are many cues that some of us may be experiencing or perhaps exhibiting ourselves. But we didn't know. We didn't know. (laughs) Yeah, we didn't know. We didn't know. So a lack of respect can look like everything from being in a rush all the time, constantly rushing people and not giving space for individuals to think and process and allow everyone to speak up. It can also look like forgetting to show gratitude. If you send a message and you write uh, THX period, when you're trying to thank someone, when they stayed up all night to work on a project for you, a THX period is not a thank you. It's like an acknowledgement of an email. Take that extra step to show some radical recognition and make sure your gratitude is more explicit. Another example that is a lack of respect is rampant multitasking. We are seeing high levels of multitasking, even on video calls, even when we're on video. And I think one of the general rules there is you can be respectful as a meeting host. If you don't need someone on the call anymore, I I recommend initiating a Zoom BCC. Write in the chat, BCC these people. Kind of like we had an email BCC to loop people out. And what this will do is allow people to have the liberty to say, okay, I can leave the meeting. Like I would walk out of the room and just say hello versus the awkward, you know, individual that talks over everyone and says, oh, I have to go now. I'll see you later. Those are just some examples of what respect does look like versus what it doesn't look like in our digital world. In some of these instances where your communication goes awry, what if it's you that's creating the digital anxiety in your group? How do you know it? In my research, I identified that there are four types of digital anxiety that are most common and prevalent in our lives, not only in the workplace, but also in our family lives and friendships and communities and in our neighborhoods. And these four most common types of digital anxiety that can help you realize if you are 
creating digital anxiety are number one, brevity. Number two, passive aggressiveness. Number three, slow or no responses. And number four, formality, or what I like to call a change in formality. I've been speaking with Erica Dwan, the author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection, No Matter the Distance. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, science moves from the lab bench to a product. First up, treating stroke. I'll speak with Aleviance Dr. Mark Allen. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Erica Dwan. We're talking about digital body language, how to build trust and connection, no matter the distance. And these four most common types of digital anxiety that can help you realize if you are creating digital anxiety are number one, brevity, number two, passive aggressiveness, number three, slow or no responses, and number four, formality or what I like to call a change in formality. So let me go through them pretty quickly. Brevity first. I'll give you an example of a situation that causes a lot of anxiety. One of my clients sent a message to his boss, Tom, that said, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And his boss, Tom's response was yes. Now, this is a situation where Tom was probably (laughs) busy. He was probably rushing and multitasking but especially for that mid-level employee that has to follow up again, this actually causes a lot of anxiety. Brevity creates confusion. Taking the extra step to making sure that you are clear, not just brief, will avoid digital anxiety in others. Number two, we've already talked about passive aggressiveness. Making sure that if you get a passive aggressive message from someone else or, or assumptions that it may be passive aggressive, that you don't react to it. You stay in the place of reason. Don't get emotionally hijacked and respond with clarity. And sometimes if you need a break from it, take, you know, sleep on it and then come back to it the next day or draft an email and come back to it the next day to not get caught up. 
and passive aggressive behaviors. Third, slow or no responses. Now we've all been privy to the experience of being ghosted, uh, whether it's in our personal or professional lives, we follow up with someone and we just don't hear back. And if we were face to face, we'd run into them enough where they would have to respond to us walking down the hall. This can be, this can cause very high levels of anxiety. And my general rule of thumb here is have an expectation of a response time, especially if it's a product you expect from someone else. If you are not getting traction after a follow-up, no one to switch the media, pick up the phone, uh, you know, decide on setting up a call. Some individuals I know are just terrible at email and will only respond to texts. And so knowing individuals' different digital body language styles will avoid you feeling anxious that they haven't responded and instead get to the best answer. And then last but not least, formality. Now, we all have perhaps been through experiences where individuals are informal in their language. And whether it's back and forth one-liners or short, pithy text messages, but what if all of a sudden they went from informal language to all of a sudden being formal? They started to change their emails from one-liners to starting with Dear Erica and ending with Best Regards. <laughs> Wouldn't that signal a little bit of discomfort in us? Uh, or perhaps if you're used to texting them and then all of a sudden they email you and tell you you have to work with their assistant to get on their calendar. These are signals of a change in formality. And my research has shown that they are a high, they do cause high levels of digital anxiety as well. And my general rule of thumb here is, again, don't get emotionally hijacked. Assume good intent. But if you see a repeated pattern of formality that is changing a relationship, know when to have a candid conversation so that you can avoid emotional rumination and get to clarity. Well, if I came away with anything from your book, it's always, always, all caps, always proofread your email and text messages. I can't tell you how many times I've been called Eric in an email, dear Eric <laughs> or dear Dewan. Uh, and uh, the simple cues of honoring and spelling individuals name taking the time to be thoughtful and rereading your message. Again, it's a 30 second action, but uh, today thinking before you type and creating cultures of clarity are not soft skills. They're the power skill. Erica, such a pleasure. Plenty more in this book. I know we went over so much, but there's plenty more here. So I hope you will come back and join us again for this and future books. I have a lot of confidence in you, Erica. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you, Maura. My guest today is Erica Dwan. Her book is Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. It's published by St. Martin's Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. As we age, our body takes longer to heal. Could discovering the reason we take longer to heal turn out to be a treatment for some age-related diseases, such as stroke. Dr. Mark Allen is the co-founder and CEO of Elevion. Well, Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Moira. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, when we were children, uh, we would scrape our knee or get a bruise, and they, it would just like heal overnight. It was like so fast. But then year after year, decade after decade, it, it takes longer to heal. What's up with that? That is an unfortunate effect of aging. So why is that? Because 
you know, throughout our, our lifetime, our DNA doesn't change. It's the same in all of our cells throughout our life. But what changes is the expression of different proteins. And that's really the, the core of the initial area of focus uh, of our co-founders at Elevian is how do proteins change with age and how might they be involved in our regenerative capacity? Now, that means both not just the outside, as I'm saying, the bruises and the scrapes on the skin, but also the inside, all of our, anything that's going on in our body. Yes, absolutely. So when, when we're young, um, it's not just the scrapes, um, it's you know, broken bones, muscle injuries, but also we don't get so many different age-related diseases. We don't get Alzheimer's disease. We don't get cardiovascular disease. I mean, there are genetic variants that are very unusual, but as a whole, young people don't get these diseases. And we think a lot of that is because we're healing at a very rapid rate. And the rate at which we heal goes down with age. Now, has science told us anything about the proteins that perhaps are changed or at least uh, diminished with age? Yes, it has. And you know, that's our, our area of study and focus as a company. So our co-founders who uh, lead three labs at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute uh, studied how proteins change with age. And in that, they identified a number of different factors. But one was particularly interesting because so little was known about it. A factor called growth differentiation factor 11, GDF11 for short. So what they discovered is by many measures, this factor goes down with age in animals. And when they replenish this factor in aged animals, they see a broad rejuvenative effect. So they see that the tissues of the brain, of the heart, of skeletal muscle, and of metabolism all improve with just replenishing this single circulating protein. So it wasn't a far stretch to say, maybe it could work for humans. Well, what's interesting is this protein is is 100% identical in its mature domain across all mammals. And the protein even goes back, it's changed a bit, uh, but it goes back to flies and fish. And, you know, even in flies and fish, there are studies showing that, that giving them this protein can enhance their lifespan. Now, those studies haven't yet been done in, in mammals, but we do know that it rejuvenates the aged mammals in, in many different ways. We also know that it's potent enough to treat a number of different age-related diseases. So, you know, there's no regulatory path today to treat aging right, and prevent disease. Uh, instead, we need to choose which disease to target. And so, you know, really pleased to, to say that, that we've now identified a number of different diseases, um, which are, are really significant unmet needs in humans, meaning that there's no good treatment, no effective treatment, where GDF-11, at least in animal studies, uh, provides a significant benefit. Well, you can't just jump into testing it on humans. Uh, we know that. Uh, so how do you go from a research lab with research quantities of GDF-11 and small uh, studies that you're doing yourself to go down that road to make it a real product, to test it in humans with that hope to make it a real product? Yeah, so I'll, I'll quickly take you through that process from, from breakthrough scientific discovery to drug. So, you know, it, a lot of these discoveries start out in academic labs. And, you know, in our case, our, our, our founders made this discovery. It was recognized by science as a top discovery, published in Cell and Science, top journals. And, you know, the first thing to do is to reproduce 
those results, right? So it, some of the early data had trouble early, uh, you know, and that's actually quite common, right? There's differences in methods. There's differences in the quality of the protein supply at the early stages. Um, so, so lots of challenges there. So one of the very first things that we did was developed a quality production method for developing, manufacturing recombinant GDF-11. Okay, that's the first thing we did. And recombinant, recombinant means you engineered GDF-11. Yeah, yeah. So the old protein therapeutics, if you go back decades, um, you know, to get insulin as an example, what we did is, is we extracted it from the blood of pigs. So it would take many pigs to give the insulin for one diabetic for one year. So cruel way, um, you know, for sure, and inefficient way. So, so the biotech industry was really created on this concept of recombinant protein. So recombinant protein means we understand what the gene is, what the DNA sequence is for that particular protein. Okay, and we insert that gene into a cell line, and then that cell starts to manufacture that protein. And it, we grow the cells in big vats, and then we extract the liquid media, and we purify the protein out of that liquid. So that's the whole biotech industry there in a nutshell, companies like Genentech and Amgen that really launched this industry. So that we took the genes of insulin, we stuck it in a cell, and you said, okay, start, start producing. And we started producing all of this insulin that we could harvest. And that is the insulin that diabetics now inject today. That's right. And it has, it has many advantages. First of all, that insulin is human insulin. So the pig insulin is slightly different. So it's a better quality product at a, at a lower cost. And, you know, one, a, 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 just an, an enormous invention that, that this whole industry was founded upon. So we're using that same invention, okay, to now manufacture recombinant GDF-11. So this GDF-11 protein, now this is a tough protein uh, to manufacture. So there's a lot of, of proprietary technology that goes into that. And we have to, again, manufacture it. We have to, after it's expressed, we have to, they call it post-translationally modify the protein to get to the mature domain. We have to purify that out and we have to put it in a stable formulation that we can then use um, initially in animals and then in humans. Then the next thing is to reproduce our founder studies. So in the aged animal models, showing those rejuvenative effects, which we were able to reproduce. And then it was really a hunt of what disease do we target? And so we spent a lot of our first couple of years as a company really iterating in that process. So, you know, it's, a, it's the problem of the platform company is, you know, this, a technology that can be used for so many different things. What do you focus on first? So what we wanted to focus on is a significant unmet need. So an area that there's not a good existing treatment. Okay, number one. Number two is an, an, an area where we could treat for the shortest possible duration Okay, number three is where the alternative to treatment is very bad. And so part of that is if there are any side effects at all, which we don't know in humans, if there are any side effects, if the side effects aren't so bad and the disease is worse, then you should still get approved. And, you know, the example, a lot of cancer drugs are very, very toxic, but much better than having cancer. Right. So so we went through that process and one of the most prominent mechanistic effects Actually, I'd say the most prominent mechanistic effect of GDF-11 is improvement in the quality and quantity of the vasculature. 
Okay, so one of our co-founders discovered this specifically in the brain. And when you image the brain and stain the, the vasculature in the brain, it looks like a spider web in a young animal. It's very healthy. It's vessels all over the place. When you stain an old brain, it looks like a couple of chicken scratches. It's a remarkable difference. So we have less blood and less veins, vasculature, as you say, flowing through our brains as we age. Yep. So it's not just veins. Yeah, our vasculature is our arteries, veins, and capillaries is really the critical part of the vascular, which capillaries go everywhere. If you were to take your vasculature and you were to tie it end to end, all the arteries and veins, but then all the capillaries, which are so much longer in length, tie it end to end, it would go around the earth two and a half times in a healthy vasculature. For one person? For one person. Isn't that amazing? But as we age, it's a teeny fraction of that. Now, when you give GDF-11 to the aged animals, it restores their vasculature to a youthful state. That's incredible, right? It looks like a youthful brain. So, you know, when we, when we looked at that, we said, okay, so vasculature is central to a lot of different diseases. And what diseases could we potentially target? So we looked really seriously at cardiovascular disease, quite a bit of evidence there. So another disease that's very, very similar to a heart attack is a stroke. Similar. Very similar. So both of them are primarily caused by clots. It's where does the clot go? If the clot goes to the heart, it's a heart attack. If the clot goes to the brain, it's a stroke. Okay, so in the case of strokes, we also see with just a few days of treatment of GDF-11, a significant improvement in motor function in animals. So really exciting finding there. Now, stroke is a massive problem. Um, it, it is the number two cause of death worldwide, the number one cause of long-term disability. And there is only treatment for stroke is to eliminate clots and must be given within the first few hours. There's one drug and a device like a rotorooter, um, kind of similar in, as, as in a heart attack. So the problem with that is that there's two kinds of strokes. There's a clot and there's a bleed. So in the US, most strokes are clots. In China, most strokes are bleeds. And from a clinical presentation, okay, from the symptoms of the patient, you can't tell which is which. So they both can cause paralysis. They both can cause slurred speech. They both can, can cause you know, problems thinking. So you have to rush the patient to the hospital, do a CT scan to look at image their brain and see, is this a clot or is it a bleed? If it's a bleed, there's no treatment. If it's a clot, then if we're fast enough, we can get this treatment. In even the best hospitals, in cities, only about 20% of patients get that treatment and about half of them improve, but about half of them don't. So stroke is a number one cause of long-term disability. 50% of stroke patients have ongoing long-term deficits. Uh, so so it's, a, 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 as we say, an unmet need is a big, big problem. So what we found is that GDF-11, number one, it works in both clots and bleeds in improving function. That's really incredible because its mechanism is not to eliminate the clot. Its mechanism is to regenerate the vasculature. And secondary to that, we see lots of improvement in brain function. So number two is that we can also give it later. We can give it early and we can give it later. So we can give it after they are no longer a candidate or even if they've had this clot busting therapy and still have a deficit. So we're right now 
ramping up the concept. Okay, so now we've got, we've got a disease. And by the way, that, that disease, unmet need, short, relatively short endpoints, so relatively inexpensive clinical trials. There's challenge because it's a hard, there's other people have tried and failed. So it's a, it's a challenging indication to go after, but we're, we're really different. We're really different mechanistically, and we think this could work, and we've assembled a team of great experts to, to look at this and understand our path and what patients we would target and what endpoints we would go after, which is a motor function endpoint. So, so we, we think we can do this. Okay, now, in order to start that clinical trial, first we need to scale up production of the drug. So we've developed a manufacturing process that we run in our lab. That's not good enough. So in order to make enough protein for the world, we need to go to big manufacturing processes. So most companies work with partners on that. Then we grow now the cells in big vats and we use big purification equipment. And it must be done within a GMP process, an audited process. So that's why we use the partners. And so once we produce that drug in the audited process, then we need to take that drug and we need to run extensive safety and toxicology tests, which they call IND enabling tests, well-defined tests, both in rodents and in large animals. Then we can begin safety tests in humans. Then we can begin treating stroke patients. How big is a large animal in this case? <laughs> I assume you started mice. <laughs> yeah, a large animal is typically either a dog, a pig, or a primate. Really? So you got to get it close to the human because we're talking about things that could affect your brain before we even go there. Yes. Very significant. Yeah. And well, it's not just the brain that we're worried about, right? We're worried about, so we inject this systemically and um, that's a big advantage. We don't have to inject it into the brain to get these effects, but when it's injected systemically, it can touch any tissue. Right, so we have to look at all of the tissues. Okay, it's all over your body. All over your body. GDF 11 is all over your body. And if you increase the blood vessels, the vasculature, that's all over your body as well? That's right, which is a really positive effect. Um, so, you know, most drugs, you really design them to be very tissue targeted because you don't want any adverse effects outside of the tissue. In In our case... We are by design trying to develop something that targets aging, that broadly improves the body, um, improves our regenerative capacity. So it's by design that those effects are broad. Now that said, we need to very closely study safety. And so our hope is that it's not just safe, but it's beneficial to many other tissues and organs. Our attitude toward aging, I mean, we are... We are trying to improve it. I mean, there's like, you should not be obese and you should exercise and there's, you shouldn't smoke and you should drink moderately. I mean, there's sort of a general set of a listing, if you will, that's supposed to help you. And I guess they do. Yes, there's no question. If you do those things, um, you know, you delay the onset significantly of, of chronic disease. And then there's also a limitation, even if you're doing all of that at some point aging catches up to you. So what can we do to really push out that human limitation? This question of, could we ever get a drug approved to treat aging? Um, you know, there's an interesting group that's working on this right now. Uh, so 
there is a, a, a trial called the TAME trial, which is, is being conducted by the AFAR, the American Federation for Aging Research, with the principal investigator, Nir Barzilai, uh, looking at metformin as a potential treatment for aging. And at metformin, that's familiar to me. What, what is that? Yeah, metformin is the first line therapy for type 2 diabetes. So it's a it's an oral drug. It's been taken by millions of people and it, it, the interesting data there shows that patients that have diabetes on metformin, type 2 diabetes, do better than aged match controls of people that are not diabetic, not on metformin in terms of onset of chronic disease, a number of different chronic diseases. So so that got people thinking that maybe metformin does more than just treat diabetes. Maybe it could also be used as a treatment for healthy aging. So their group, group are, are together. I don't think it's fully funded yet, um, this research study. But the problem with a research study like that is that it's, a, it's looking at, at can this drug prevent the onset of age-related diseases? So what you do is you have to take a lot of people that you bring into the trial and you have to wait until they get a disease or don't get a disease. So as an example, they're looking at a trial that's six years long with 3,000 patients. That's a big trial, right? And so we ultimately would like to do something like that, but that's not the right way to enter the market. For us, we go for a much more well-defined where we only treat people that have the disease and we can treat a much smaller number and see an endpoint in 90 days as opposed to potentially years. Now, I do have a little alarm bell going off in my head, and that is that, oh boy, we get a lot more vasculature as, you know, closer to what we were when we were younger. And yet in cancer, we're trying to starve the blood vessels going to tumors. Are we inviting disaster, if you will? That's a great question and a real concern. So, you know, in a very early study, one of the first things that, that scientists knew about GDF-11 is they discovered that, that colon cancer cells appear to um, have higher levels of GDF-11 um, in, in colon cancer. So, you know, maybe the, the colon cancer is somehow using GDF-11 to stimulate growth of vasculature for its purposes. Now, you know, that, that raises a concern, um, you know, would GDF-11 potentially cause cancer? So, you know, really pleased to say that there's no evidence of that. In fact, multiple interventional studies that look at adding GDF-11 um, to the animal, treating an animal with GDF-11 that has different kinds of cancer, we see a tumor suppressive effect. So apparently when we have this global effect of GDF-11 where it's improving vasculature throughout the body, the cancer has no special advantage. And in fact, it helps to fight the cancer. So the cancer is actually creating more GDF-11 to draw the blood to it. But if everybody has it, then... It's all equal. That's our hypothesis, yes. So, so it's very clear that, that many kinds of cancers release angiogenic, they call that, uh, factors. So angiogenic means grow vasculature, okay? So GDF-11 does that globally. So it doesn't just do it around the cancer. So it does it throughout the whole body. So the cancer has no special advantage. Right now, how do you anticipate this drug being delivered? And how frequently would it be delivered? Yeah, so we anticipate it being delivered IV, 
So, you know, it's not something that that patients could take at home on their own, at least the initial versions of this. Uh, you know, you'd be treated at a hospital or in a clinic. And um, for how often, all of our studies, we've used daily dosing. So, um, you know, the protein does not make it through the gut. Uh, so it has to be injected either IV or subcutaneous is another possibility. Uh, and, and it has a short half-life. So that's a, you know, it's a, it's a disadvantage of the drug. The advantage of the drug is that it's a natural protein. So many of the leading drugs is a very well-proven form of therapeutic modality, as we say, is recombinant proteins, natural proteins. So a natural protein is more likely to be safe than something that's not natural that your body's never seen, right? So there's, there's real advantages there, but because it requires injection and has a short half-life, it is where we're starting as a company, not where we're ending. So ultimately what we'd like to do to be able to promote healthy aging, for example, is we'd like to get to either you take a single shot, maybe once a year and you don't need to take it anymore, or you can take something orally. So we have programs, we call them discovery programs, to identify other ways to modulate GDF-11 activity other than injecting the natural protein. So you're all over this GDF-11. <laughs> yes, it is our sole focus as a company. We really believe in this data. There is something real that's happening here. And uh, you know, there's lots of minefields to properly bring a drug to market. Uh, and we're trying to think as intelligent as we can, bring really smart people around the table, scientists and business people um, and to help us to, to, to really, um, you know, bring an enormous potential benefit to humanity. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming in and, and thank you for sharing with us what it's like to step out of the research lab and into a company. I mean, that's that's a very treacherous uh, and daring step. And I think a lot of people haven't had that insight. And, and, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Thank you. I look forward to that, Moira. Dr. Mark Allen is the co-founder and CEO of Alevion. More information is available on the web at Alevion.com. That's E-L-E-V-I-A-N, Alevion.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.